Amen. Well, it's great to see you all this morning. It's a good day in the house of God. I was so encouraged by that time of worship. Like when we were singing, oh, praise the name. I'm like, I think I'm in heaven right now. Hearing those harmonies and you all singing, that was just a really beautiful time. So I'm glad you're here today. And also just want to reiterate about the kickoff Sunday. I know we had like 10 announcements. There's a lot going on in the church right now, obviously. But kickoff Sunday, it's going to be a huge day. And I really want to encourage you. There's invite cards on the different High top tables back here, and then also coffee bar and welcome center. And the next Saturday, like she was saying, we're going to go and hang door hangers out in the city. And we have 5,000 door hangers, so we need some people to help. So 9 a.m. here at the church we're going to meet, and then we'll go and distribute those. So I hope you'll join us for that. All right, so about three weeks ago, the garbage disposal side of our sink stopped draining properly. And I have no experience with plumbing, but was determined to fix it myself. I typically call professionals where I'm like, hey, I'm going to fix this myself. I am a man. I own a house. I'm going to fix this. So I did what all homeowners do, and I YouTube how to fix it. And the video gave three strategies on how I could fix it. And the first of which was to take a plunger and try to plunge it like you would a toilet. And I tried that for literally 30 minutes, and nothing happened. The water just splashing all over me. I had dirty, gross water all over. I changed my shirt twice because I couldn't stand all the stinky water, so I changed it, and then I kept plunging like an idiot. But anyways, it didn't work. The second strategy was to, to take out the trap pipes underneath and, and kind of get any gunk out. So I tried that, and as I was doing that, I broke one of the pipes, so I had to go to Menards, buy new trap pipes, put them on, and I was like, okay, is it going to work? No, it didn't work. It didn't drain. And then the last strategy was to replace the garbage disposal, which I don't know how to do that. So I called my pops and said, hey, can you come help me change the garbage disposal? And he came to town a couple days later uh, to check it out. And right when he gets there, he says, where's the toilet plunger? I'm like, it's in the bathroom, but I already tried that. I was like, we've talked about this on the phone. I've already tried the plunger. He's like, no, where's the plunger? I can do it. So he grabs the plunger and just like doesn't talk to me. It all just starts going pow, pow, plunging it. And he's doing that for about probably 10 minutes or so. And then it starts to drain. And he was so proud of himself. He, he turns the water on, flicks it on, looks at me, and we're talking. I'm just like, <laughs> cool. And then all of a sudden, I feel water on my toes. And I'm like, what's going on? There's water gushing out from under the sink. He popped the pipes off because he was trying to plunge it so hard. So there's water all over the kitchen floor. Thanks, Dad. Uh, uh, so he didn't fix the clog after all. Um, and then we had to clean up the kitchen full of water. But then later on, we went. We got a garbage disposal. We replaced it. We're proud of this. We're like, okay, it's going to fix it. Sure enough, it didn't fix it either. So I finally succumbed uh, to calling a plumber. Called a plumber. He got it figured out. There was a uh, clog deep in the pipes that he had to get out with this special machine. And I think I honestly spent about eight hours on this, and I was unsuccessful as I didn't know what the real problem was or have the tools to fix it. And every one of us, we are born with an ache in our hearts that longs for something more. There's something deep in our innermost being that says that this life is not what it's supposed to be. We have a sense that, that something is not quite right, and we don't know how to fix it. And my repeated attempts to fix the problem with my sink illustrates what many of us do when trying to deal with this problem of discontentment and lack of peace in our hearts. We think that the inward turmoil is due to something external, so we attempt to deal with it by gaining something we don't have or getting rid of a hardship that we do have. For example, we might think that the problem with our hearts has to do with our physical health. If, if I was only healthier, then I would be happier. So we try to eat healthier, we work out more, we try to get down to a better weight. Or maybe we think our finances are the issue. We think that if we can have more money in the bank account or have nicer stuff, then perhaps we will fix that problem in our hearts. 
or we think that our relationships or lack thereof are the problem. So we try to get better friends or we try to find a spouse or get our marriage healthier. And one of the things I love about Jesus is he certainly cares about all these things. He cares about our finances, our relationships. He cares about our physical health. And he'll often help us in these various areas. He'll answer prayers. He'll give us wisdom on how to get healthier physically, for example. He might provide financially in a supernatural way. Or he might send great people into our lives to give us better relationships. In the Gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus cares about the stuff of our lives. We see that through the fact, primarily through the fact that every town he went to, he healed people. When people would come to him and want physical healing, he would heal people knowing that it was just temporary, but he would still give them that alleviation of their suffering. And Jesus shows us by doing that, uh, that he cares about the stuff we're going through, and he wants to come down to our level and help us. However, we've also seen in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus' primary concern doesn't seem to be simply improving our earthly lives. He wants to go deeper than the temporary stuff. And we've seen this in the way that Jesus responds to crowds. We would think that someone who's trying to start a movement would be pumped about the crowds, but, but when the crowds got too large with people, he would often uh, withdraw to desolate places so he could spend time doing important things like like teaching people about eternal matters. He knew that these crowds full of people who just wanted healing, they weren't going to really be the disciples he needed to go and reach the world. So he said, I'm going to go to a desolate place and spend time with a few. And he often, he would redirect people's attention from the temporary problem in front of them and push them to think about eternal matters, like trying to lead them into repentance from their old lives and trust in the kingdom, or trust in God and his kingdom. And the reason for this is Jesus knew that giving us what we want in the short term will not deal with the root eternal heart problem that's underneath everything else. He knew that the solution to this heart problem is not giving us something, it's not fixing a temporary problem, but instead it's forgiving us of our sin and making us right with God. That's the only thing that will deal with that root Issue. So with that said, the sermon title this week is called The Disease and the Cure. The Disease and the Cure. Okay, so as we continue in this series, we're going to see that sin and rebellion is the primary uh, disease that Jesus came to deal with, and that forgiveness is, or forgiveness, or forgiveness is the cure. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, turn, turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We are finally in chapter 2. It's been, I think this is part 9 of the Gospel of Mark, so we're moving along Uh, rather slowly. So we're in chapter two, so turn there with me. And in the last couple of weeks, we've read about Jesus's early days of ministry. We've seen him teach with what what Mark calls authority. Uh, We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him heal people. And we've seen, as I was saying, that his popularity has boomed rapidly, uh, so much so that he had to go outside the city and live in desolate places. And again, he was concerned that if his popularity grew too quickly with people who just wanted miracles from him, then he wouldn't be able to properly execute his primary mission, which was to lead people into repentance from their sin and to restoration to God. He knew that in order to do that, he must have time to patiently teach people about the kingdom, and he knew that large crowds were not conducive towards that end. In Mark 2, we're going to see that Jesus comes back from the desolate place. He goes back to his home base of Capernaum, to teach again. It appears that he thought that the excitement surrounding him had started to die down a little bit, uh, so much so that he could return to his town and continue with his mission. 
And it didn't take long for people to hear that Jesus was back in town, and they flocked to him to hear him preach. So let's read this. It's in chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, and not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. All right, let's pray over this and we'll get into it. So Jesus, we thank you for this word this morning. We thank you for this passage. And God, I pray that it would come off the page and into our hearts. And I pray that you would speak to every single heart in this room in the way that they need to be spoken to. So Spirit of God, we ask you to begin speaking now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so although Jesus doesn't or doesn't love large crowds, he uses the opportunity before him to preach the word. And when Mark says the word, he's referring to the gospel or the good news that we've talked about many times in this series. And it's the good news that the kingdom of God has come near and that the way to join into the kingdom is to repent and trust in Jesus. Okay, so he's preaching this word about repentance and trusting him when all of a sudden he, he starts to hear something on the roof. It's like the cricket I keep hearing. Something's kind of, you know, or kind of... There's some bustling up there. Something's going on. And just with the cricket, by the way, it's wanted dead or alive. So if you can find it, thank you in Jesus' name. My dad found one cricket. Again, he was pumped about it, but I hear another one. So we got to find it. Okay, so that is a total side note. All right, so back to the roof. He hears something on the roof. He's like, what's going on up there? And Palestinian homes of the time had flat roofs that were accessible by outside staircases. They were often made of sticks, thatch, and mud. Okay, these roofs were often used like our decks are today. It was a place to get fresh air, to dry laundry, eat, or even pray in solitude. We see that throughout Scripture, that sometimes they'll pray on the roof in solitude. It appears that these four men were digging through the roof as Jesus is preaching. I can't help but wonder what they were thinking as they saw and heard the roof being dug through as Jesus is preaching. Jesus then meets the paralyzed man, and and this is shocking. He doesn't say to him, he, he doesn't say, son, your body's healed. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And this is startling to the religious leaders in the scene as they knew that God is the only one who can forgive sins. And this leads Jesus to prove that he can forgive sins by also healing the man. After healing the man, everyone is shocked as it appears that Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins. And that has some startling implications to first century Jews. And now that we have this story kind of framed in our mind, I think that Mark wants to tell us three things this morning. So the first thing is this, if you're taking notes, is sin is the disease and forgiveness is the cure. Okay, sin is the, sin is the disease and forgiveness is the cure. Okay, when the paralyzed man is brought to Jesus, Jesus immediately begins to deal with his sin 
and not with the obvious problem before him. This man was obviously in great need of physical restoration, but Jesus was more concerned with his spiritual restoration. Jesus healed many people throughout the gospel. Mark, we've already seen it. And he doesn't always say something about sin. He doesn't usually say something about sin, but instead he just heals them. But with this man, he deals with his sin first. So the question is why? Why this man? Why would he deal with this man's sin first? Well, I think that he might have dealt with this man's sin first because, or because for this man, sin was on his mind. He wanted, to pre- or he wanted to be forgiven, so Jesus wanted to speak to that desire. And it's interesting to compare this paralyzed man with all the people around him. This paralyzed man is aware of his spiritual need, and there's a crowd of people around him who are not aware of their spiritual need. Crowds of people are hardly a good thing in the Gospel of Mark. If you haven't gotten that in the last two weeks, then I don't know, because I've said it like a billion times. Crowds of people are hardly a good thing. They are typically passive actors who just want to be around Jesus for the wrong reasons, and they often obstructed access to Jesus for people who actually wanted him for the right reasons. In this crowd, it included scribes who thought that they did not need forgiveness, they did, or they thought they had everything figured out. It also included people who just wanted Jesus for his miracles, but didn't actually want Jesus for Jesus. In the midst of all of these spiritually blind people, there lies a paralyzed man who seems to actually want the right things. He seems to want forgiveness. And Jesus, he, he uses this opportunity to show the crowd that our real issue is deeper than the obvious problems or needs before us. The main problem in this man's life was not his inability to walk, but the sin in his heart. Can I say that again? The main problem in this man's life was not the, or his inability to walk, but the sin in his heart. It's important to know that, that when the Bible talks about sin, it's not just referring to doing bad things, okay? I think a lot of times we think, hey, don't do the bad things, right? That's what sin is. It's doing bad things. But no, when the Bible talks about sin, it, it's referring to making things other than God the king of our lives. The very first commandment is to have no God before God, right? It's this idea that sin is taking God's stuff and putting it in the place of God himself. It's taking good things and making them into ultimate things. It's making other things our savior, other things our king, things other than Jesus, other than God, become our master. That's what sin is. And Jesus knows that if this man wants to have joy, if this man wants to truly be healed, he needs to make God king in his life. As long as he would try to run his own life, as long as he would try to find joy in God's stuff and not God himself, he will always feel like he's missing something. Jesus didn't want this man's restoration and joy to be temporary, but he wanted it to last even after the euphoria of the healing was long gone. Jesus doesn't just want to deal with our surface level issues, but he wants to drive deep into our hearts and deal with the real problem. He knows that if he can get us to trust him and get right with him, then we will have joy that perseveres no matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter if you're paralyzed. It doesn't matter if you don't have any money in the bank. It doesn't matter if your relationships aren't great. You're still going to have joy because you have King Jesus. Jesus knew that. One of the things that Emily and I have been wrestling with as relatively new parents, our oldest is almost three, is how to get our our kids to bed at a consistent time. And with Jane, it's especially hard when it doesn't get dark outside till like 8.45. Come on, Lord, let's have some winter. I never thought I would say that. But, but with Jane, 
it's a unique struggle. As she has two going on 13. And she likes to do the opposite of whatever we tell her to do. I actually made a song with her where I sing all the opposite things she likes to do. I'm like, if I don't... Or if I want to watch Bluey, you want to watch Doc McStuffins. If I want you to go potty in the potty, you want to poop in your pants. I, I sing that song to her. I'm like, you need to stop doing the opposite of what I tell you to do. I'm going to start telling her, hey, you can stay up all night. And hopefully she'll go to bed. I don't know. But if I know she won't. But if I'm honest, sometimes we throw up our hands and let her stay up a little while longer than she should. But the thing is, when we do that, other problems inevitably come. Uh, she be, or begins to get very irritable, and even the slightest thing can cause her to lose it because she's really tired. And we, or when we tell her that she needs to go to bed, she's convinced that sleep is not the answer, but more snacks or TV is the answer. She doesn't realize that the reason why she's so unhappy is not because she doesn't have enough snacks, she had about eight already, or that she hasn't got to watch enough TV, but because she needs to sleep. In the same way, we often think that if God can give us more money, more health, more fun, and more pleasure, then we will be fulfilled. We will be cured of the God-sized toll in our hearts. This passage is calling us to realize that more of God's gift will not solve the God-sized problem in our hearts. If we want joy, peace, and life, we must make Jesus the king of our lives. And we must stop trying to make the things of this world our savior, but instead must, we must let Jesus be savior and king. As we get right with God, as we walk in intimacy with Him, we will have joy that rises above our circumstances and persists even in the midst of intense trial and pain. Okay, so when Jesus pinpoints the true problem in this man's life and gives him the cure of forgiveness, the religious leaders begin to question amongst themselves if he has the authority to forgive. So it says this in verses 5 through 12. It says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? And which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your, son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Okay, so second point this morning, if you're taking notes, is Jesus has authority to administer the cure. Jesus has the authority to administer the cure. Okay, so the main point, this is the main point that Mark is trying to make in this passage. He's trying to make the point that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And Mark has already told the reader that Jesus is the Son of God, and he's shown us the truth of that through the way that the Father affirmed Jesus in his baptism. He says, Behold, you're my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. But the, or the characters in the story have not seen that yet, because that was something that God spoke to Jesus, and Mark tells us that God spoke to Jesus. So the characters in the story still haven't seen that Jesus is the Son of God. But for Jesus to claim to forgive sins here is to begin to reveal that he was God himself. In Jewish, or in Jewish literature at the time, not even the Messiah could forgive sins. And Jesus is claiming to not only be the Messiah by doing this, but to be God himself. Jesus is showing us that the Messiah is not just a human deliverer, but he's actually God. An early church father said this about Jesus forgiving sins in this passage. He says, How can sin be rightly remitted unless the very one against whom one has sinned grants the pardon? Okay, the only way that Jesus could forgive this man of his sins 
as if the sin was against him. By saying that he was forgiving the man of his sin, Jesus is showing us that he can only be one of two kinds of people. He is either, in some strange way, a divine person, or he is a blasphemer. And blasphemy was a capital offense. And this begins a conflict that's going to ensue throughout the Gospel of Mark between Jesus and the religious authorities. That it's going to climax in chapter 14 when Jesus is put on trial by the high priest and he's condemned for blasphemy. And the conflict that begins here with the authorities ends with Jesus being put on the cross. This is the first thing that kind of leads down that road. Tim Keller says this about this passage. He says, if he not only heals this man, but forgives his sin as well, he's taking a decisive, irreversible step down the path towards his death. And by taking that step, he is putting a down payment on our forgiveness. Okay, so Jesus, he's not only forgiving the man of his sins in word, he's not just saying it, but he's actually taking tangible steps down the road that's going to lead to his death on the cross, which is ultimately going to pay for his forgiveness. So Jesus isn't just saying it, he's taking a step towards securing the man's forgiveness by dying on the cross. Ephesians 1.7 says this, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Okay, so it's through the blood of Jesus that we're forgiven. So he's taking a step down that road. And, and this conflict doesn't only lead to the cross, but it also mirrors what happens on the cross. Okay, so bear with me here. So in our story, Jesus is condemned for saying that he can forgive sins. But he's ultimately vindicated because he heals the man. He's like, look, I healed the dude. So you can't really question me at this point. In the same way, at the end of the gospel, Jesus is going to be condemned on the cross for blaspheming but he will also be vindicated through his resurrection. And his resurrection is going to point towards our future resurrection when all of our bodies will be raised up on the last day to be with God forever. In both scenes, Jesus forgives us of our sins and makes a new restored body possible. It's really beautiful what Mark is doing here. Okay, so when I was a freshman in high school, I had a friend who I went to church with who had just graduated high school, and he was planning to go to college. One night, I got a great idea to call him and pretend that I was an, an admissions counselor at the college and tell him that he got a full-ride scholarship. I did not expect him to actually believe me. I did not expect him to believe that a college would call him at 7.30 at night on a Friday night, but somehow he believed me. He was ecstatic. He was pumped. And I thought, oh, crap. I also thought it was hilarious. I told him later on that night that it was me and that I was only joking. I thought everything was good. I told him I was joking, but when I got to church on Sunday... His parents were angry. And these were good church people, okay? Nice church people, like smiling all the time, shaking hands. They were angry. I apologized to them, but they said, you have to apologize to our son, which I'm thinking, I already did on Friday, but fine, I will. So I go to him, and I'm like, I'm really sorry. And I asked for his forgiveness, and I had sinned against him, so I needed to ask him for forgiveness. I couldn't just ask his parents. And sure enough, he forgave me, but man, that was an awkward morning. We were all on the worship team together, and it just was not, I was not feeling the Holy Spirit that morning, okay? But by forgiving this man's sin in this scene, Jesus is showing us that he has the authority to do so. And not only that, but he proves that he has the power to forgive by healing the man as well. He's proving that he's done it. This morning, I can't help but wonder as some of us came to church and we didn't have a very good week this week. Maybe we're feeling the weight of our sins. We did something we regret. And we need to realize that 
our sins are primarily against Jesus. And we certainly need to ask for forgiveness from those we've wronged. That's a biblical thing to do, to go to someone that you've hurt and ask for them to forgive you. But we also have to go to Jesus because, again, our sins are primarily against him. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is he is eager to forgive. It's near to his heart to forgive someone who comes to him asking for forgiveness. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus wants to deal with the problem beneath all the other problems, and the only way to do that is to, for, or is to forgive us of our sins. But we must be willing to come and ask him for forgiveness. And that applies if you're already a Christian and you've wronged God and you need to make things right. It's not that you're getting saved again, but just like any relationship, you do need to own it and repent. Or if you're not a Christian and you want to become a follower of Jesus, you have to go to Jesus. It starts with going to him and saying, Jesus, I have sinned. Will you forgive me of my sins? Okay, so we've established that uh, the real problem in this world and in our hearts is sin and forgiveness is the cure. And we've also established that Jesus is the one who has the authority to administer the cure. So with that in mind, what do we do once we've been forgiven? I think the four friends give us a great blueprint. So let's read two through four again. It says, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, and not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the, or the bed on which the paralytic lay. Third and final point this morning is this. We must get the cure to as many people as possible. Come on, somebody. We must get the cure to as many people as possible. Okay, these four friends were so convinced that Jesus had the cure that they were willing to do whatever it took to get their friend into his presence. And they knew that if they could only get their friend in front of Jesus for a moment, it could radically change his life. And what they failed to realize is that Jesus wasn't just going to heal their friend of his physical disease or his temporary problem, but he was going to heal him of his eternal spiritual disease. Their faith in the power of Jesus caused them to do some crazy things. And it's actually their faith that causes Jesus to notice. So Ben Witherington III, he's a smart scholar, he says this, it must also be noticed that it is their faith which causes Jesus to respond as he does to the paralytic. Their daring action in, in disassembling the roof pres, or presumably is what we are meant to think demonstrated their faith. They dared to do the difficult, the dangerous, the controversial in order to bring their friend into the presence of Jesus. These guys were desperate to get their friend to Jesus. And their faith unlocked miraculous power. Their expectation that Jesus would move in this man's life and their actions that actually backed that expectation up set the stage for Jesus to do his greatest miracle yet, which was not healing the man, but forgiving him of his sins. A few weeks ago, Emily and I watched a new movie that just really stirred my heart. And I'll be vague on the details because I don't want to ruin it for you because it's a really good movie. Essentially, the, the movie is a classic end-of-the-world movie. I love those movies. I don't know why, but I love them. And in order for humanity to survive, they must come up with a way to destroy their alien enemy. And towards the end of the movie, one of the main characters finally develops a toxin that will wipe this enemy off the map. And she's so convinced that this toxin will deal with this that she gives up her life so that the toxin can be, max, 
or can be mass-produced. And there's a powerful scene where she's falling to her death, she's handing off the toxin, and you can see in her eyes that although she's dying, she knows it's worth it, as her life's work has just saved the world. She knows that I have just saved the world. And she's so convinced that she has the cure that she's willing to give everything to, or to get it out there. In the same way, this is how the people of God should operate when it comes to getting the gospel of Jesus out there. If we truly believe this stuff, if we truly believe that Jesus has the key to forgiveness and healing, then we're going to do whatever it takes to get this to our friends. And we're going to do whatever it takes to get Jesus to people. And God will be able to trust us or to get the cure to as many people as possible. In James 2.17, he says this, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. If we say we have faith in Jesus, it should lead us to take bold steps to introduce people to Jesus. We need to ask ourselves this morning, does Jesus see our faith in the way that we share him with people? Does he see it? Does our conviction that Jesus saves cause us to love difficult people unconditionally? Does it cause us to forgive people quickly? Does it cause us to take bold steps of action and faith like these men did? If we truly believe that Jesus saves, we will do whatever it takes to get people into his presence. If we truly believe that Jesus has the cure, we will pursue Jesus personally every day and seek to become more like him so we can be his representatives to the world. We know we need to abide with Jesus so we can go out and bear fruit and actually live like Jesus. We know that that is life or death. Like you may not believe that, but your time with Jesus is life or death. You being like Jesus might be something that leads someone to him. If we truly believe that Jesus forgives, we will look for opportunities to share his love in conversations. If we truly believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, then we will invite people to join us at church, not because we're trying to make St. Church huge, but because we want people to get into God's presence with the people of God and perhaps give their life to him as they experience the people of God in community. Jesus is looking for a people who actually believe this stuff. He's looking for a people who actually believe that he saves and are desperate to get people to him. He wants people who will rip a roof off if they have to. Can we be that people? I believe God's asked us to be that people. I believe that's why he's asked us to be called Sent Church. He wants us to be people who are sent out by God to love the one, serve our cities, and change the world. All right, the main idea this morning is this. Jesus came to save the world, and we must get him to as many people as possible. Jesus came to save the world, and we must get him to as many people as possible. I don't know what brings you to church this morning. Maybe you're here because you really love Jesus, and you're just pumped to be here. And if that's you, awesome. Or maybe you're here because you are interested in Jesus. Again, we're glad you're here. Or maybe you got drugged here by a friend. They've been bugging you to come to church, and you're like, fine, I will come, but I'm not coming back after this. If you're one of those who, who is seeking or you're interested in Jesus, or you don't really want to be here, again, I'm grateful that you would come today and give it a shot. Before you leave, though, I, I just really feel like this passage beckons me to encourage you with, with one more thing. There's no doubt that if you're a human being, you have some level, which is every person in this room besides the cricket, but if you're a human being, there's some level of discontentment and lack of joy in your life. Every human being has that problem. All humans experience that. I've experienced that. And maybe you've been tempted to fix that with 
or temporary solutions like more money, better health, success, or achievement, or could be any number of things. This passage is, is making clear to us this morning that those temporary solutions won't solve the actual problem. If you want to have that God-sized hole filled, then you need God to fill it. You need to be forgiven and experience what it's like to walk in relationship with the king of the universe. You need to experience that. And the way that this is possible is Jesus was willing to come and live the human life. He, he never sinned once. He, he lived this life perfectly. And then he was rejected by the authorities of his day. He died a gruesome death on the cross, and then following that, he rose from the grave. And through his death, he, he paid the price. We need to get this. He, he paid the price for our sins. He, he paid it all. It's not like, hey, he paid for some of it. No, he paid for all of it. On his back, he took all of our sins, all of our shame, all of our guilt. And through his resurrection, he declared death, sin, and hell defeated. And now he gives us the opportunity to be forgiven and to live a resurrection life and, and to be resurrected on the last day. He gives us that opportunity. All we got to do is trust in him. All we got to do is put all of our weight in him. And in Romans 10, Paul tells us, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. You'll be like that paralytic who got forgiven of his sins. But it starts with you saying, Jesus, I need forgiveness. It starts with you coming into his presence. And so what I want to do is give you an opportunity. If, if you have once followed Jesus and you walked away from that, or you've never followed him, I want to give you a chance to say, Jesus, I need your mercy. I need your grace. I want to be in your family. So if, if every head will be bowed across this room, every eye closed, I want to give you a chance to have that moment with you and God. If you need to be forgiven of your sins, I'm going to count to three. And when I do, I just want you to slip up your hand and say, hey, Jesus, I want to be in your family. Hey, Jesus, I confess that you are Lord and I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. And if you do that, you will be faithful and just to forgive you. So, problems and you see the real problem underneath it all and jesus you want to forgive us of our sins the, the true problem you want to forgive us of our sins and make us right with you so jesus we thank you for paying the price for our sins and rising from the grave so we can live with you forever we put all of our trust in you in jesus name amen all right can we give god praise there's four people that raised their hand can we give god praise for that come on We are people sent out by God to just dispense his mercy all over the Cedar Valley. That's what we're called to do. So I'm just so grateful uh, that there's more people coming home to Jesus this morning. But I also want to speak to you if you're already a follower of Jesus. If you're already following Jesus, I want to give you two encouragements as we close based on this passage. So the first thing is I want to remind you that there's nothing in this world that can satisfy you. There's nothing in this world that can deal with your heart problems. You can be a Christian and seek out other things to satisfy you. I want to remind you that, that money, relationships, success, physical health, and any other thing you think of, it can't deal with that problem in your heart.
if you're struggling, there may be things that you need to do to help with that. For instance, you may need to start exercising. You may need to see a therapist. You may need healing from God. You may need to get better relationships. Sure, like that stuff is true, and God can help you with that. But the most important thing is that you put Jesus first, and you seek him first. Matthew 6, 33. If you seek me and my kingdom and my righteousness, I'll give all these other things to you. He says, if you put me first, I'll take care of the rest. So put Jesus first this morning and see what he does in your heart. The second way I want to encourage you is with the example of these four men. These guys are forerunners of what we're called to do as we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We are called uh, to lay aside all of our own inklings to try to preserve ourselves or protect ourselves. We're called to, or to lay aside the temptation to be scared of rejection. And instead, we're called to do whatever it takes to get people into the presence of God. And there are people in your spheres of influence that God has called you to go and share the gospel with. And this week, I believe that God's going to give you opportunities. But the question is, will we be faithful to share the love of Jesus with people? I pray that we would. All right, so uh, let's stand up all across this room. We're going to pray one more time. Pray that God will help us to be a church that can deliver the cure. Pray that God can trust us as his ambassadors. Let's pray for that this morning. Let's pray that God would empower us as we go out to our community to share his love. All right, Jesus, we love you this morning. God, we come to you and we're asking you to give us the cure and to help us administer the cure to our community. God, people need to be right with you. There are broken relationships all across this community. People that aren't in right relationship with you. And God, we want to help bring people back into your family this morning. God, help us to do that. Empower us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to speak your word to our community. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we give God praise this morning? Come on.